Tonight is the last uh, session of our Squared Away study. Uh, I've enjoyed doing this. It's been challenging. Um, I, I, there's a part of me that's excited to get back to teaching word, verse by verse through the Bible, and uh, so that's what I intend to do starting in January. Tonight's the last night of, our, of this. So uh, next week we'll have the uh, downtown Christmas family night. So I hope you'll come and invite others. And then we'll be off on Wednesday nights until the second Wednesday night in January. And I, my plan is to do either the Gospel of John or some portion of, of John uh, in, the, in the new year. So be in prayer for that. But uh, obviously we're talking about a very sensitive, a very complicated issue tonight. I hope I do a good job. I hope I don't muddle things, but instead help make things a little clearer in terms of how we as Christians should respond. This is the kind of thing that 10 years ago, you just didn't think you'd need to talk about. And yet, this is how things change. And you, we as God's people, we live in the world we live in, right? We live in whatever particular Babylon we're situated in, and this is our Babylon right now. We have to be faithful exiles in this country uh, the way it is. Doesn't do any good to wish it was different. What, it, what we must do is love those around us in a Christ-like way right here. So obviously the title, Do Christians Hate Transgender People? The obvious answer should be no. And notice the way I said that, should be no. It should be no because God doesn't want us to hate anybody. God has commanded, Jesus commanded us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Uh, and that includes everyone. That includes even people that don't like us back. But... We also know there is a perception among people in this community that Christians hate them. So what do we do about that? We have to acknowledge a couple of different realities because life has gotten complicated, as I, as I indicated, the last 10 years in this area. Uh, there, there is a sense that we have as God's people that we need to speak up on these issues, that we need to offer the Christian perspective. We need to uh, push back on some of the changes. And, and some of that is just out of a sense of loving those closest to us. For instance, if I had a little child in the elementary schools today or junior high or high school, I'd want to know, is my son or daughter being taught something about gender that I don't approve of? I'd want to know that in advance. Uh, if I had a son who wasn't stereotypically masculine or a daughter who was a tomboy, I wouldn't want them to face the pressure of people coming up to them and saying, hey, I think you might be transgender. I think you need to consider transitioning. Childhood is hard enough without people telling you, oh, you're, you're in the wrong body. Um, if I had a teenage daughter who was an athlete, I, I sure wouldn't be excited to find out that she was competing against a biological male, which does happen sometimes. Thankfully, rarely, but does happen. In, in my real world, my daughter is a teacher, a high school teacher in the public school system. And what happens if she chooses not to use the preferred pronouns of one of her students? Will she be fired? Will she get into trouble? I don't know. I mean, these are issues we have to deal with that earlier generations didn't. And so we as Christians feel a desire to protect people around us. We also feel a desire to, uh, to guard certain standards in society that have guarded human civilization since the very beginning. On the other hand, we recognize that we're talking about a very vulnerable, vulnerable group of people. I'm not an expert on this. I'm just a guy who's read some books and is trying to seek what God's will might be, the best way to represent Christ. Uh, one thing I've learned, though, is that 
there really is a, a segment of the population, very small, but real segment of the population that doesn't feel at home in their own bodies. And that's got to be miserable. I don't think the rest of us can really comprehend how that feels. And I know that that is a vulnerable population because one study I, sh I read showed that the, the rate of attempted suicide among transgender individuals is the highest by far of any other group. It's one, one study said 41%. 41% had at least attempted suicide once. So I think about what Isaiah said about Jesus in Isaiah 42.3. He said, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, Jesus, when he got to the, got, came to the earth, he didn't come to hurt people who were already hurting. He came to help. He came to be gentle, to be kind, and we should be as well. So I've given you a couple of books. If you, I mean, maybe this is something that's very, very close to your home. You've got a relative, a friend who's going through this. I know there are some people in our church. I know of some families in our church that are dealing with this situation now. And you may want some more guidance than I can give. Or maybe you just want to know more. Uh, these are a couple of resources. The first one, Embodied, uh, the book by Preston Sprinkle, is really good. It's well well written. It's It's not long, and it's not scientifically written. It's written on a, on a layperson's level, like us, uh, and I think you'd find it really helpful. The other one, The Secular Creed by Re Rebecca McLaughlin, it isn't just about transgenderism. There's one chapter about that, but it's a good book anyway, to dealing with some of the claims you get from the secular world uh, and how we as Christians should respond. So those are a couple you can look at if you want to go further. So my purpose for the rest of our time together is to deal with three questions. Number one, what does the Bible say? Uh, number two, how should we respond to transgender people we know? So our, our relative, our friend, our neighbor, our coworker, they come and announce to us, I'm no longer male, I now identify as female, or vice versa. How do we respond to that? And then third, how can we engage these issues in a Christ-like manner? When we see somebody say something on social media like trans women are women or things like that, how do we respond? What do we say to that? Okay, so what does the Bible say? There's really only one verse that we need, and that's the one I've quoted first, Genesis 1.27. Shouldn't surprise you, there's the term transgender is not in the Bible, nor are a lot of other terms we use frequently today. Those terms didn't exist back then, but Genesis 1.27 tells us, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From the start, God created two distinct genders for a purpose. And not just for procreation. Obviously, obviously, there's no children being born unless there's a man and a woman involved in one, in one form or another. But it's not just for that purpose. As we've talked about in other of, other of these studies, uh, the different genders have roles that point to the glory of God. And I won't go any further than that. But I would also point out that when God came into the world in human form, to redeem the world, to be, in essence, the perfect human, the perfect one who would take our place for salvation. He didn't come as some genderless being. He came as a man. And when he was resurrected on the third day after his death, he was still a man. And in heaven, where he still uh, bears the scars, he is still a man. I believe that uh, in heaven we still will have human gender. 
so it is, it is not an evil thing, and it's not an irrelevant thing. It is something God created for a purpose, and in his eyes it is good. I think that's pretty easy for us to comprehend as Christians. Now this next part, you're going to wonder, I, this is going to stretch, this is going to test how good of a teacher I am. If you get what I'm saying here, then I should get a gold star. I'm not sure I'm going to get it. But anyway, here we go. So Matthew 19, 3 through 12, some Pharisees came to him, meaning Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? I know, I know. Just stick with me. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Now, obviously, the main thrust of this teaching is about marriage and divorce. Jesus shows that he has a high view of marriage, so high that his own disciples say, well, if, it's, if, if you got to stick with the woman you married, no matter what, then maybe we shouldn't get married at all. You, you see the, the thinking of men in that culture because there was very much a sense of, you know, as a man, I should have the right to leave my wife if she no longer pleases me. Of course, it didn't work the other way back then, but that's the way they thought. All of that to say, Jesus is telling them, just understand, God created marriage for a purpose. Now, why does he start talking about eunuchs at the end? Because that's what I want us to focus on. That's what I think touches on our topic tonight. I don't think I need to explain what a eunuch is, right? You can ask your mom when you get home. Um, but he mentions three different kinds of eunuchs. And I think the reason he mentions them, let me just say this, is because the disciples said, maybe it's better not to marry. And Jesus is saying, well, maybe it is for you. Maybe if you don't think you can be faithful to a woman for your whole lifetime, then maybe you should be one of these eunuchs, one of these people who chooses to live like a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God. Maybe you should just say, I am fully capable of marrying and procreating. I choose not to because I just don't think that I would be a good husband. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, how does this touch on our topic? Because this is where it gets a little hard to understand. What does he mean when he says there are three different kinds of eunuchs? Well, we understand that middle one, those who have been made eunuchs by others. We know from history that back in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for kings to require that those who served them in the court, even advisors, were required to be eunuchs. And especially if they worked with the king's harem for obvious reasons. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. But what about eunuchs who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I think he's talking about people like himself, the Apostle Paul, and others in the early church and since who've said, I just don't feel like I should marry. I, I, I choose to be a single celibate adult because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I think I can serve God better. I think it's a gift 
Paul says, as an apostle of Christ, I can put my neck on the line all the time for him and never once think, you know, if I die, who's going to take care of my wife and kids? I can risk it all with, with nothing held back. And so there are people to this day, there are Christians who will tell you, and, and, and I think they should be commended for this, I just, I just feel like God has given me the gift of singleness. And they are able to serve God in their single life. That's what Jesus is talking about there. But what about eunuchs who were born that way? What is he talking about there? All right, so you may or may not be aware of this, but there are a very small percentage of people who are born with, I mean, the, the moment they come out of the womb, the doctor cannot identify their gender. They've got uh, aspects of both genders on their bodies. They're born that way. And this condition is called intersex. That's the term for it now. It used to be called something else. I believe, and some biblical scholars believe, that's what Jesus was referring to. Some people are born in such a way They'll never have what we consider uh, a, a traditional um, or, or a biblical, well, they will never have that uh, life, that married life, that sexual life that God has commanded in his word. And I think what Jesus is saying is not only, hey, if you don't think you can be a good husband, then uh, just don't get married. I think he's also saying all three of these kinds of people that I've just mentioned, they are fine in the eyes of God. Your ability to marry, your ability to procreate, your ability to perform sexually, uh, your interest in that has nothing to do with whether you can be redeemed or not. So, yeah. Aren't you glad you walked in right then, Candace? Perfect timing. So, next question. How should we respond to people we know who identified this way. And I think obviously the first thing we need to know is it's our responsibility to love them, to love them no differently than we did before we heard them say this to us. Uh, Jesus has commanded that. It's obvious. And the reason I stress this is I know that if it were me and if it were one of my children who announced this to me or my brother or someone else who I was close to, my first gut-level emotional response would be anger, confusion. I would want to shout at them. I would want to say, you're wrong. Don't you understand how wrong this is? And yet, when I stop and think about that, I realize how counterproductive that would be. Number one, let's say it was my son or daughter who came to me with this. I guarantee you, they would already know that this was something I didn't agree with. I wouldn't have to tell them that. They would have been dreading that conversation forever. And so me expressing anger, me expressing disagreement wouldn't change what they are going through, wouldn't change the struggle they're having, wouldn't make it any better. The main purpose, I think, my main purpose as a dad or in another relationship, as a friend or, or a co-worker, uh, is to say, hey, I still love you. I still believe in you. I still want to be there for you. This doesn't change anything in terms of our relationship. Because otherwise, you lose the opportunity to continue to speak into that person's life. You have to be careful of that. But number two, we need to recognize that love doesn't always mean agreement 
and celebration. And that's something that's not often discussed in society today. There is very much the voice that says, or the, the, the uh, cultural message that says, if you do not celebrate my choices, then you do not love me. If you do not uh, embrace everything about me, then you do not love me. And we, in all these kinds of relationships, and not just with trans transgenderism, with any kind of lifestyle of someone who we're related to in some way that we disagree with, we always have to pray for wisdom. How do I know how best to love this person? How do I tell them the truth and at the same time let them know that they are loved? And because there's that message, if you don't embrace me, if you don't celebrate me, if you don't love me, we have to go above and beyond. We have to love them more obviously, more clearly than anybody else so that at the very least they can say, you know, I know he doesn't agree with me, but there's no doubt that he loves me. That should be our goal. That should be our one of our primary goals. And, and they will be disappointed that you don't celebrate their choices. They will be disappointed that you don't embrace their new lifestyle. And again, when I say you need to pray for wisdom, I'm saying I can't tell you whether you should call them by their new name or not. That's not my decision. That's something you should pray about and ask God for wisdom. But I am telling you, they will want you to just go all in. And when you do not, because of what the scriptures say, you need to be able to explain to them why. And it can't be an explanation that sounds something like, well, I've got Christian friends and I don't want them to be, or I, you know, I've, got, I've got other kids here and I don't want them to see you and, and, and go after your example. Well, you know, I, it can't be anything that makes them feel like you're rejecting them personally. And so, others of you, in the wisdom of God, may come up with a better way of saying it, but this is, this is what I think I would say, is something like this. Again, speaking to some hypothetical son or daughter who came to me with this. You know, I'd say, if you were cutting yourself, as some people do, I would want you to stop. No matter how much you told me, this makes me feel better. This helps me with my anxiety. I would, I would know. I know your feeling is real. I know your pain is real. I just don't think that cutting yourself off from who God made you is going to make you as happy as you think it will. I'll always be proud of you. I'll always love you. I'll always want you in my life, and you'll always be welcome in my home. But if you love me, you shouldn't ask me to celebrate something that I don't think is right. That's not love either. I think you've got to explain it in terms of love. I love you, but just like I can't force you to, to do something you don't want to do, you shouldn't force me to celebrate something I believe is wrong. Again, pray for wisdom, but understand, you don't have to celebrate everything about their life to love them. Number three, listen to them. This is one thing I saw in, in everything I read is uh, people who are in this position, they, they feel alienated, they feel misunderstood, they need somebody to listen to them. And one of the things I learned in this research is that term transgender means a, a whole lot of different things. Of course it means people who uh, choose to live as the opposite gender. And some of them uh, go the, uh, go the all, all the way and, and transition through uh, therapies and through surgeries. That That's part of it. But sometimes it means uh, a person says I'm transgender, what they mean is I just don't feel at home in my body. I just don't like who I am. I don't plan to do anything different. I just 
this is something I'm struggling with. And sometimes, and for some people, it simply means I don't fit traditional gender stereotypes. You know, I'm a woman who likes power tools, doesn't have any interest in you know, dating men, or I'm, I'm a guy who, who likes traditionally feminine things. And you know, it can mean any number of things. It's up to us to listen. And really, listening to them is a sign that we care. That's a sign of love. You matter. I'm not going to act like I'm grossed out by you. I'm going to listen to what you're struggling with and what you're dealing with. And that, then number four, I'd say don't freak out. Uh, one of the other things I've learned is a very high percentage of kids with what they call gender dysphoria, that's this idea that I think I'm in the wrong body. A high percentage of kids, from anywhere from 60 to 80%, eventually grow out of it. Which, again, it is why uh, we as, as Christian people understand, well, as, as anybody, that you shouldn't uh, put a kid through some kind of transitioning therapy, uh, even if they're asking for it at a young age. These, these things sometimes pass. Now, that's not to say that your response, if, if a loved one says this to you, is, oh, this is just a phase, you'll grow out of it. But it is to say, be patient, let God work, and see what happens. And even if they never change, know that God still loves them. His love for them hasn't changed. The, the way they come to know Christ, the way they can be redeemed hasn't changed. The cross is the same, uh, no matter what your, uh, what your particular brokenness is. And then number five, you need to tell them about the hope that's found in Jesus. And, and that's been the theme through all of these, is when you're talking about defending your faith, it's not about winning arguments. We can win arguments if we're louder, if we're more eloquent, if we're, we've done more homework than somebody else, and lose the bigger war. Because all we've done is make them feel humiliated. Now, it, it's not about winning an argument, it's about bringing them a step or two or more closer to Jesus. That's our priority. And yes, yes, people with these issues can be saved and are saved. That book, that first book I recommended to you has features conversations with people who struggle in this struggle with gender and yet they come to know Christ. And it's very interesting to see how they how they deal with all those feelings and what they do with them as a believer in Christ. And so, you know, if somebody were to say to you, listen, I just I, I just know these feelings won't ever go away. And I think what you can tell them is that's where the resurrection comes in. Romans 8, 22-23. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now I love that whole passage. I love the whole idea that the whole earth is like a, a woman in, in, pregnant with with a, a baby that's coming, and when that baby gets here, it's going to be wonderful. The baby in this metaphor is the new earth, our new bodies. But what I love about it also is that last sentence, or that last phrase, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting eagerly for our bodies to be redeemed. We're not just going to be redeemed on the inside. We're going to be redeemed from head to foot. And we will have bodies that won't... What you can tell your friend, your, your child, your relative, your co-worker is, listen... We are all broken in some way. All of us. All of us live in broken bodies. And our, that brokenness manifests itself in a, an infinite number of ways. 
from from deafness to uh, dementia to to uh, having a, a bum knee to uh, you know mental illnesses of, of all flavors and, and styles, and yet we look forward to a day when we inhabit bodies that are unbreakable, bodies that are perfect, that are redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lord. And so, uh, if you struggle with your your gender identity now, just understand it won't always be that way. God can and sometimes does change that. And even if he doesn't now, the amount of time you will spend in that perfect body is eternal. The amount of time we spend in these broken bodies is a whisper, eternally speaking. It's just a, a breath, and then it's gone. doesn't make it easy, but it makes it bearable. And you have that hope that something better is on its way. <coughs> And then the last question, how do we engage these issues in a Christ-like manner? Because these things are coming up. People in your office are talking about it around the water cooler. People on your social media are bringing it up from both sides of the issue. You hear about it in the news constantly. What do we do? How do we respond? And, and listen, you want to hear my opinion? Well, whether you do or not, I've got the microphone. So um, I just want you to know that what I'm about to say is an opinion. This part. My opinion is that this is an issue we're going to win. And I don't mean eternally. I think I know that's the case. I know we're on the right side of history because we're on the side of the Lord. And whatever side he's on is the one that will win in the end. I just mean, I think we're in a time right now where there's a huge segment of the population that has just discovered this group of people, transgender people, and has gone out of their way to try to make sure they're cared for. And there's a lot, I think, an overreaction that's causing a lot of issues in our society, in our culture. And I think eventually, cooler heads are gonna prevail. Reason will return. And because we have biology on our side, there are obviously two genders. You're gonna see, I mean, it's already happening. I know I'm, I'm stumbling here, but uh, this is already dividing people on the secular left. I don't know if you're interested in this or not, but I find it interesting. There is a term it's called TERF, T-E-R-F, which stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminists. And that's far-left feminists who don't agree with the transgender thing because they say, hey, if a man can claim to be a woman, then there's no woman. So even on the secular left, there's division on this. Eventually, we're going to finally come back to the point of saying, let's be sensible about this. Let's do something that, that protects people, that treats people the way they should be treated, but doesn't uh, go overboard and change society. That's, okay, opinion over. Take that for what Here's what I say as a pastor. Here's how we should engage these issues. I believe biblically we need to choose our battles wisely, which means most of the time you don't need to respond to that social media post. Most of the time you need to recognize that, you know, it's, it's fine for that person to talk. It's their right and you're not going to convince them otherwise anyway. Again, pray for wisdom, but most of the time we don't need to get into these arguments. And let's say your, your child and your grandchild comes home and you find out that your kid's teacher said something that you know is not right, something you disapprove of. Just my advice, have a conversation with the teacher first. Have a conversation with the teacher. Don't make your first action to round up a group with torches and pitchforks and show up at the next school board meeting. Mm. That shouldn't be your first step. Your first step is 
talk to the teacher and say, listen, I hear this is what you talked about. I'd like to have gotten some heads up on that. Can we talk about this for the future? You're going to get a lot farther that way and be a better representative of Christ. Number two, don't be cruel or sarcastic. This should be obvious, but it's not. Uh, some of you will probably remember last year when uh, a biological man won a race in the women's college swimming meet, national championships. And some of you remember the picture of uh, this biological man in a woman's swimsuit standing there with the gold medal uh, and next to the two women who finished second and third. And you could just see the physical difference. You could see broad shoulders, long limbs, and then much smaller, much smaller frame. Obvious disadvantages physically. And that made a lot of people angry. It, it made me upset. But I saw a lot of Christians, some Christians that I knew personally, good people, posting about this on Facebook, showing that picture, and then making comments underneath. Some of them attempting to be funny. And I just thought, you know, I don't disagree with what you're trying to accomplish. But ask yourself a question. If somebody you know is struggling with their gender identity and you don't know that, and they see what you just posted, how likely are they to come to you and say, hey, can you pray for me? Can you give me some advice? Can you tell me what the Bible says about this? Once they see something like that, you've lost any attempt to minister to that person. So understand, I mean, basically, I would just say humor and sarcasm at the expense of others is probably never a God-honoring thing. Is that, a, is, that a, is that something we can say absolutely? So let's practice that policy. Let's, let's remember that we're not just talking to people who think like we do. We're, our, our actions, our jokes can have consequences far beyond what we think they will. And then the last point, um, I need to explain. I'm going to say this is not a Bonhoeffer moment. I, I'm not trying to be, you know, erudite when I say this. But uh, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a Lutheran minister in Germany in the 1930s. He was one of the few, sad to say, one of the few German Christians who was outwardly opposed vocally opposed to Adolf Hitler. He made it known. And one of the things he did, and the reason he was arrested and eventually executed, was he participated in the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. And I think you and I can agree that, for the most part, assassinating public figures is not a Christian thing to do, right? And yet Bonhoeffer did the math and he said, listen, this guy's killing people left and right. He's, he's a madman. We've got to get rid of him to save all these lives. And today, Bonhoeffer is seen as a Christian martyr. I think he should be. So, when I say this is not a Bonhoeffer moment, this is what I mean. It's pretty common today, at least in the circles I travel in, Christian circles, for people who are upset about a particular issue. And they're upset not just that this issue is going on, they're upset that other Christians aren't as upset they are, as they are, right? You see this a lot. Right? Why aren't you angry about this? Why aren't you? And, and, and their point will sometimes be, listen, in the 1930s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up against Hitler. We need to stand up against this. And their point is, you know, the time to be kind and gentle and the other fruits of the Spirit and to love our enemies, well, that time is not now. 
You know, forget everything the Bible says, forget everything there is to say about the Christian life and Christian character. Now it's time to put all that aside because this is an extreme moment and you have to put that aside. All right, the problem with that, you're going to hear that if you, if you pay attention. The problem with that is Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up to a regime that was in the process of killing six million Jews and starting a world war that would end up killing tens of millions of people. I think you and I would probably agree that it was a Christian thing to do to stop that from happening, whatever it took. We're talking about the transgender issue. I don't mean to make light of it because it is a serious thing. But at this point, for most of us personally, all it has meant is a little annoyance, maybe a few inconveniences. Maybe when you go to the doctor's office, I don't know, maybe they hand you a clipboard and there's something on there. Instead of saying male and female, it says, what is your sex assigned at birth? And maybe there's like 20 different boxes to check. I've seen that before. And yeah, that can be a little irritating to us. We can look at that and say, well, how did we get to a world like this? We might even get up and, and, and gripe to that poor young lady that handed us that clipboard as if she wrote the form. And I would just say, this is not the time to give up being a Christ-like person. Just fill out your form, love the people around you, and realize that this is the world we're living in right now, and we have to love people in this world, not a world that we wish it was. So, Acts chapter 8, it's a great, great story about, and this is my clothing, I promise, Philip the Evangelist is called to go witness to a man on the road to Gaza. You know the story. Here comes this chariot. He looks inside. There's this black man riding in that chariot. Happens to be not only the, the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia, but a eunuch. He's coming from Jerusalem. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. So what that tells Philip is this guy is obviously not Jewish. You can look at that. You can see that by looking at his skin. But he's a God-fearer. He's gone to Jerusalem because he believes in our God. And he has purchased probably at great cost, a scroll of one of our prophets, he's wanting to learn more. So Philip, of course, gets into the chariot, lends into the Lord, that man gets baptized, goes home to Ethiopia. It's, it's a wonderful story. But here's something you may not know. So he's reading Isaiah, right? He's a eunuch. Eunuchs in virtually every ancient society were seen as less pleasing to the gods. Even in Israel, Worship the one true God, a eunuch wasn't allowed to go into the inner part of the temple. They had to stay out in the court of the Gentiles. And yet, that eunuch, if he kept reading beyond Isaiah 53, which is where he was reading when Philip encountered him, he got three chapters further. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. I'm sorry, this isn't in your notes. I forgot to put it in. Here's what he would have read. You listen? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And yes, that's what it says. And yes, I think it's referring to exactly what you think it's referring to. It's, it's God through Isaiah saying, you may do things to your body that I don't approve of, that I know are wrong, and yet I still love. 
And yet I still have a plan for you in my kingdom. I can still redeem. I can still give you uh, an everlasting name. Something even better than the ability to have sons and daughters. And it ought to make us it ought to make us rejoice to think about the moment that Enoch first read that sentence. But even more, it ought to make us rejoice to think that we serve a God who is that gracious. That all he's about is rescuing and redeeming anyone who wants to be redeemed. So let's praise him. Let's pray to him right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are who you are. And it is a, an honor and a joy to serve you. Lord, these issues are complicated and we don't understand so much that's going on in our world. It grieves us. And we know that it can only grieve you far, far more. But we pray that we will represent you well. Heavenly Father, help us to replace uh, anger with gentleness. Help us to replace judgment with grace and to love people just as they are. And Lord, to lead them to redemption by your grace. Help us to have wisdom to speak the truth in love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.